would you like to know? Well, you should listen. Zoom. Cron. Week in review. Listen closely. Zoom. Cron. It's gonna help you. Then think for yourself. What the hell happens? I'm gonna tell you. From my in perspective. In the Zoom Cron. In Zoom Cron. Week, week in, in review. review. Right now. Here's an independent journalist, Travis. William, William Skink Matier. That's right, another episode of Zoomcron Week in Review. I am your host, Travis William Skink Matier, and I am continuing the brief review of the week, the week being June 19th through the 23rd, and then going into the reading of the first chapter of In Retrospect. This is a book about Mineral County, as I myself try and better understand Mineral County, which actually successfully, I think, improved my understanding of Mineral County a bit after a great conversation with the sheriff on Friday. So this is Friday evening. I'm recording this introduction. I actually recorded myself reading the first chapter of In Retrospect back in April, just kind of had it in my back pocket, ready to go in case I wanted to switch into a more book-focused podcast review of the week. So we're going we're gonna to see how this continues to go. I got a couple chapters um, that I'm going to be selecting from in retrospect. Maybe we'll just do the whole book. I'm not entirely sure, but this is chapter one. It's all about Mullen Road. It's a historical perspective. It's very interesting. So as I document current stuff going on here in Missoula and in Mineral County, yeah, we got a little bit of historical perspective coming up. I do want to take a quick look, though, at the post for the week, let you know what I've been up to. I started off the week, that's June 19th, Monday, with who found Joey Thompson's body in the Clark Fork River and where. I continue asking questions, going to Mineral County, walking around, traipsing along the riverbank, finding skulls with holes cut in the head, speculating wildly, is it animal sacrifice? And then thank you to a couple commenters who said, actually, no, Travis, I think that's just uh, antlers being cut off from a buck that was probably shot and killed by hunters. Ah, uh, yes, sometimes my suburban upbringing definitely shows here in Montana. I grew up in the, in the suburbs, but I was born in Spokane. Didn't do a, a lot of hunting, though, so not all that familiar with why uh, a hole in, in a skull would be cut with like sort of two 45-degree angles inward. Um, I, I did speculate maybe it was chronic wasting disease testing. So I, I tried to find something else that wasn't just the, maybe it's a satanic cult sacrificing animals to their satanic overlord. I didn't go straight to that, but I did speculate. Maybe something like that was occurring. In any case, um, there was some uh, video footage. There was a hawk that was also very upset I was in the area. So take it for what you will. You can check out that post. I had a bonus post on June 19th. This is how I Juneteenth was the name of the post. I spent about five minutes at Fort Missoula at a political event that wanted to be a We Care About Black People event, but it was just a political event, and I saw it as such. 
was rather nauseated. Um, and then I ended up leaving and doing other things with my day, like getting ice cream and taking pictures of myself with that ice cream. Just happened to be the place that our mayor, Jordan Hess, announced his desire to be the continued mayor. Right now, he's just a placeholder mayor selected in a dark alley at two in the morning. But he wants to be our male our mayor for realsies. So that's going to be coming up in November. And I'll be writing about all the different candidates and the primaries and all kinds of fun local political stuff. Stuff that other podcasters say you should be paying attention to in your local community. But I, I'm actually doing that. We also had a post on Tuesday, June 20th, as we approached the solstice. The rainbow is now a tool being used for dividing and conquering non-compliant citizens. Just my opinion. But I also wanted to know if the $30,000 that was raised recently by MOR, that's the Missoula Organization of Realtors, if it was earmarked specifically for different populations like LGBTQ, plus, 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 whatever, something more than that. And I wanted to ask some specific questions. Not really sure if I got a, a great sense of the answers, but I do believe I was heard in one way or another. So that was a fun post. The next post, this was June 21st. Stupid Trash Wars, a political nonprofit pretender, and me showing everyone how to actually get shit done. It was really exciting to be able to announce the number of tons of trash that I removed all the way again back in April on Earth Day, and then a few other subsequent days of trash removal of the meth shack that was built very well. It was well built by Todd, but it was removed. And the final numbers, we had 2.02 tons on the first haul. 0.82 tons on the second hull for a grand total of 2.84 tons. Check the math. I am an English major, but 2.84 tons. That's a hell of a lot of trash, man. And at, at around $1,200 at personal cost, it was an expensive haul of trash. In the post, though, I, I made a point that some of that trash may have actually made a long distance uh, road trip via trash truck over McDonald Pass to Helena because of the, the stupid trash wars. So if you want to know more about the stupid trash wars, you can go to that post. All of these posts are at zoomcron.com. And then we had a learning moment for Councilman Carlino as Missoula's former top cop plays the victim card while a propagandist published a well-timed hit piece. That's right, Daniel Carlino is back in the Missoula current headlines because Martin Gomer Kiston loves to write about him so hard. He loves it. Oh, Martin loves it. And it shows. So once again, Daniel Carlino is in the crosshairs. Once upon a time in 2021, apparently Daniel Carlino sent a mean, mean email to the police chief during a committee hearing. The mean, mean email really made our police chief sad. Not really, if, I'm not really sure if that's why our police chief quit, um, but it may have been part of the reason because he was a scared. He was a scared that, that Daniel Carlino, his, his boss, may be coming for his job. Great post there. Uh, well, I guess I'm saying that my post was pretty great. I thought it was pretty good. Um, Martin Gomer Kitson's reporting, mm, not so good. It is one thing, though. It's predictable. So thanks, Marty, for uh, giving me lots of good content uh, to comment on. So after that June 21st post, we had, uh, I'm sorry, June 22nd post, we had the email has been sent and the clock is ticking. That went out June 23rd. That's today. Just make sure it's still June 23rd. It is still June 23rd. So today, um, with the help of my co-host who is not able to be here, that's right. Went to Mineral County, the mythical, the mythical place. Superior Montana is the land. I actually had a great conversation with Sheriff Funk, 
didn't intend to, just made some public comments to the county commissioners. Um, and then later in the day, this will be a post, I think, for, for next week, the wheel fell off my van. That's right. As I was driving over Reserve Street Bridge, the wheel fell off. It, it's still on, but it, it really kind of like fell off for the most part. And so my van is really screwed. The thing is, though, it led me to a conversation. That's right. I can't even get in a near car accident on the Reserve Street Bridge without stumbling onto another article that I'll be writing up for next week. So it has something to do uh, with the language Mandarin and a massage. I didn't get a massage. No, I was stressed out, did not get a massage. But man, stay tuned next week at ZoomCron because there's going to be something that I write about that. And then I'll figure out what the hell is wrong with my car and really thinking, thinking, well, I'm thankful that I didn't get on the interstate in that van because that could have been fatal. So that is the quick, brief week in review here at ZoomCron Week in Review. Now, this is me reading in retrospect, it's a historical perspective on Mineral County. I hope we all learned something. Stay tuned next week. Lots coming at you. Thank you so much for the support. I've got some great financial support. Really nice email. It means the world to me. Stay tuned. Chapter 1. The Mullen Road. Any history of Mineral County would be incomplete without mention of the Mullen Road and its builder, John Mullen. In fact, it was construction of this road which first opened this remote, mountainous area to settlement. Prior to building of the road, travel from either east or west was by pack trains and followed the crest of the Bitterroot Mountains. The Mullen Road, named for its builder, Captain John Mullen, was the first road to be built in the west on engineering principles. The Oregon and Santa Fe trails were just that, trails made as the wagon trains meandered across the terrain easiest to travel. John Mullen, the oldest of a family of ten children, was born in Norfolk, Virginia, on July 31, 1830. His family established a home at Annapolis, Maryland, where he graduated from St. John's Academy at the age of 16. His ambition was to attend West Point. Friends and advisors told him he could not qualify because of his small size. He might have been slight in stature, but he was not short of determination. He went directly to President James K. Polk and petitioned the president for admission to West Point. President Polk was so impressed by the young man's ambition and determination that he endorsed Mullen's application. Mullen entered West Point a month before his 17th birthday and four years later graduated 15th in his class. A month later, he was breveted a second lieutenant in the 1st Artillery. For a number of years, there had been much talk in the east of a railroad being built westward to connect the east and west coasts. Pressure was being put on Congress to supply the necessary funds for at least a preliminary survey. Some promoters of the road claimed it was necessary to build a railroad through the northwest to enable the army to move troops hurriedly in the event of Indian uprisings. In the spring of 1853, the government sent several corps of engineers and explorers westward to gain a more thorough and satisfactory knowledge of the country that lay between the Mississippi River and the Pacific Ocean. 
Isaac Stevens, who later became governor of Washington Territory, was in command of the party that was to explore for a feasible route over the Rocky Mountains. John Mullen, just out of the military academy, was a member of this party. This exploration party arrived at Fort Benton by boat, which had toiled up the Missouri River. Mullen was placed in command of a small party and was sent from Fort Benton to the Bitterroot Valley to a camp near the present town of Stevensville. When Mullen rejoined Stevens, he was directed to return to the Bitterroot Valley with a party of 13 men and establish a winter camp at Cantament Stevens. They were to make preliminary surveys of all possible routes across the Bitterroot Mountains to the west. Due to an open winter, he and his men were able to do much exploring. The party crossed the Bitterroot Mountains six times during their explorations. He, John Mullen, made a remarkable contribution to existing knowledge both of the snows and geography of the country at a time and under circumstances when most men would have done nothing, wrote Governor Stevens in one of his reports. In one of his reports to the Topographical Bureau in Washington, D.C., Mullen wrote, The margin of authority left me, my left me by Governor Stevens was broad and liberal, and the field to be explored was only commensurate with the importance of the work that called us to its exploration. The most essential thing at that time was a general reconnaissance and exploration of the country before location and construction of a railroad could be at all profitably or properly considered. And up to that date, the only basis that formed our knowledge and understanding of the country was the map left us by Lewis and Clark in 1805, together with such addenda as the most intelligent of the Hudson, Hudson's Bay Company were able to give us, or the scraps of information which the chance traveler or sojourner in the country felt disposed to offer, dot, dot, dot. In connection with the proper location and construction of a railroad, one of the most essential aids in advance was a good wagon road line. This became a subject of primary importance and reduced the spirit of my work almost to exploring the country for practical wagon road locations, which, in time, would lend themselves as aids in the construction of our railroad lines, Mullen continued. During the winter of 1853, Mullen talked to many men, but he gave credit for most of his information to a Gabriel Prudhomme, a half-breed voyager and traveling companion of the early Jesuit fathers in their pilgrimages through the Rocky Mountains. On the first day of March, 1854, his party left Cantonment Stevens and returned to Fort Benton by pack train, a 14-day trip, then fitted a wagon and returned to the Bitterroot, all in the space of one month. Mullen followed the Indian Trail across the mountains, thereby pr proving that a road and railroad could be built there. Later, when the Northern Pacific Railroad was constructed, it followed this same trail. As a result of Mullen's work during the winter of 1853 through 1854, an appropriation of $30,000 was granted by Congress for further exploration. The Southern Nez Perce Trail had been proven impractical as a result of their explorations. This left the Lolo Pass, the Lower Clark Fork, and the St. Regis de Borgia Coeur d'Alene routes to be examined. Mullen believed that the same person should be in charge of all these inspections in order to judge the comparative advantages of each. Lolo Pass was discarded as a possibility because of the excessive winter snows that fell there. Mullen visited the Lower Clark Fork Valley in the spring and found the Lake Pen Oriole 
area a massive swamp. Therefore, the Coeur d'Alene-St. Regis route was chosen, partly because of the shortness of distance. Later in one of his reports to the War Department, Mullen wrote, I would state that, I, that had I known in 1854 what I did not learn until 1859, I should have recommended that the section of road from Antwin's plant near Spokane to Hell's Gate near Missoula should have followed at any cost of the construction it called for the Clark's route instead of the section via the Coeur d'Alene mission. Hmm. After many delays, partly because of lack of funds, but primarily because of serious Indian uprisings in Washington territory, Mullen decided to return to Washington, D.C. He had no taste for warring with Indians. He wrote that he was an engineer, not a soldier. When he reached Washington, D.C. in December 1858, he laid all the circumstances of the case before the War Department. By that time, Governor Stevens was serving in the U.S. Congress and had been doing spade work for an application for Morse funds to further explorations under the direction of John Mullen. In March 1859, Congress appropriated a bill for $100,000 to be used for construction of a wagon road from Walla Walla to Fort Benton on the Missouri River. By the time Mullen returned to Walla Walla, the Indian uprisings that had delayed him had subsided. On June 28, 1859, Mullen, with an escort of 100 men, left there on the road building, left there on the road building expedition. This was a mixed group of army personnel and civilians using mules, horses, and oxen for transportation. In less than two months, the expedition had built a road from Walla Walla to Ten Mile Prairie, east of the Coeur d'Alene Mission. Then began what was undoubtedly the most difficult 100 miles in the entire 620, 624 miles of construction between Walla Walla and Fort Benton. The standing timber was dense, the trees huge from centuries of growth, since no one, not even Indians, ever traveled this way, there were no trails to make the task of road building easier, and there was little, if any, forage for the stock. The fallen timber that had accumulated over the years formed an intricate jungle through which the men and animals traveled with the greatest difficulty. The men cut their way through dead and standing timber, building small bridges to cross and recross the Coeur d'Alene River rather than making time-consuming and expensive cuts in the canyon walls. Mullen had hoped to reach a previously chosen site on the Clark Fork River near the present town of St. Regis and here establish a winter camp, but snow came early that year. The group la labored over the summit of the Bitterroot Mountains through Sohan Pass, later renamed St. Regis Pass. Since the timber was so dense, there were only small prairies of grass on which the stock could feed. As they advanced down the St. Regis River, storm clouds gathered over the mountains, dumping more and more snow on the men and their hard-driven animals. All hopes of establishing a work camp at the present site of St. Regis was abandoned. Lieutenant White and a group of men were left at a point about five and one and a half miles below the summit of the mountains, while Lieutenants Lyons and John Mullen advanced down the St. Regis River. Since the snow was about 18 inches deep, it was decided to make sleds to move the train. It was possible that some of the wagons were converted to sleds. Mullen wrote that the sleds were seven feet long, two feet wide, and 15 to 18 inches high. Cedar saplings were split and used for runners. Mullen later realized that fir saplings, of which there were plenty, would have been better as the cedar soon became rough with use. The advancing men found the going very rough. At one crossing, an, ups an upset in the middle of the stream wet everything, including Mullen's accounts. Tents were so frozen and the men so fatigued that no attempt was made to pitch tents when camp was made that first night. 
According to Mullen, the men plunged bravely forward with few complaints. All attempts to build a road were abandoned, and it became a battle just to survive. The second day of travel after leaving White's group brought Mullen's group to the campsite chosen at the site of his winter camp since the hope of reaching the mouth of the St. Regis River was abandoned. Lyons Camp was established about three and one-half miles up the river from the Mullen Camp. It is reported in official records that 46 crossings of the river were made between Soans Pass and Mullen's winter camp. Mullen described the camp as being situated in a dense bed of timber, which furnished both building materials and fuel. There were many fine springs, he said, and the camp was protected from northerly winds by the rims of the mountains. Mullen chose the name Cantonment Jordan for his camp, honoring a Captain Jordan of the U.S. Army who had connections with the Dallas Herald and the Dallas Oregon. The paper had done much to further the exploration of the Northwest, especially the work carried on under the direction of Mullen. Immediately after establishing Camp Mullen, camp, Mullen directed some of the men to begin butchering the cattle. Others were put to work cutting logs for cabins and quarrying rock for fireplaces. Mullen noted that obtaining the rock was difficult because of the snow and the frost in the ground. On November 29, 1859, Mullen wrote that a horse train was being sent by Major Owens from the Bitterroot Valley with supplies to aid the men wintering in the mountains. Deep appreciation for Owens' actions was expressed by Mullen. Major Owens accompanied the train as far as the foot of the mountains, probably shortly after crossing the Clark Fork near St. Regis. Mullen referred constantly in his notes to use of the crossing of the Bitterroot, as he called the Clark Fork, where he had sent men to whipsaw lumber to build a ferry boat and several smaller boats. Mullen wrote on November 30th that the men were still busy butchering and salting down meat, building corrals, and establishing themselves for a comfortable winter. An office building, 16 by 24 feet and smaller quarters for the men, were under construction. Mullen noted that splitting shingles was difficult because apparently, sometime previously, the timber had been burned, which left knots in the timber. He said they were able to obtain excellent plank one inch thick. Pine, fir, and spruce grew in the area, he wrote, but there was no cedar. Mullen expressed concern that the deep snow and frozen ground prohibited the men from road building, for that, after all, was the purpose of the trek. The pack string expected from the Bitterroot arrived on the first day of December. It was the intention of Mr. Jacobs, who was in charge of the pack string, to advance to Lieutenant White's camp below the summit of the mountains with supplies, but Mullen discouraged him in this attempt. Four men at Cantonment Jordan requested discharges and returned to Fort Owen near Stevensville with Mr. Jacobs. Mullen thought this was a foolish move. He said they could have stayed at camp and their board and room would have been free. As it was, they would be broke when spring arrived. The temperature had plummeted to 42 degrees below zero, and the men butchering cattle were suffering from frostbite. The cold continued for several days. Mullen was worried and depressed. He wrote that the fates were against them. It was bitter cold, the snow was deep, and there was no feed for the stock. After debating whether to send the horses and mules to Horse Plains, now Plains, or the Bitterroot, he decided to send them to the Bitterroot, but again worried about crossing the river. By the 9th of December, the weather had moderated, and word had been received that the stock had safely crossed the river and were on the way to the Bitterroot. It was later reported that because of the weakened condition of the stock, many had perished on the trail. The next day, ten men were sent to White's camp to move what salt and barrels could be spared to the lower camp. A man named Spangler and another man came to camp from the river crossing and drove in five head of beef cattle that had strayed from camp. Mullen estimated that there were five tons of beef on hand. He said with what they had in the Bitterroot, they had plenty for their needs. On December 11th, a Sunday, the men were resting. The quarters were finished and they had plenty to eat, but Mullen felt sorry for White's group. 
The men he had sent there returned to Camp Jordan and reported they had encountered difficult traveling in the eight miles between the two camps. They reported eight crossings frozen over, and the other 36, while open, presented no problems in crossing. Lieutenant White was planning to move his men downriver to within a short distance of the main camp. Mullen was anxious that all supplies be moved below the last river crossing before the spring runoff began. He wrote that if all supplies were not moved while the ground was still frozen, they would have to be abandoned and burned. Mail was brought to Cantonment Jordan at monthly intervals by Chief Spokane Gary, an Indian friend of Mullen's. The trip was made by horseback from the Coeur d'Alene Mission via Pend Oriole Lake and up the Clark Fork River. On one trip, the mailman lost his horse and came in on foot. He was reportedly well paid for his labors. No Indians had ever been known to follow the Coeur d'Alene crossing of the mountains, but it was a usual thing for them to follow the route used by Gary. From his notes, Mullen appeared to be in a much better mood. He wrote that although the mail service was irregular and there was not much reading material available, the fresh air and mountain scenery was compensation. Some of the men were spending time hunting. Wolves were reportedly numerous, and Mullen objected to any man going out alone. He noted that game in the area was scarce. He wrote that hunters had returned with four quarters of venison, two prairie chickens or pheasants, and a large duck. Ten more head of cattle were found by hunters, returned to camp, and butchered. Other men were busy making furniture to add to the comfort of their quarters. Supplies brought in by pack train from the Bitterroot on December 18th included extras for the men for Christmas. Mullen listed such items as molasses, pickles, and other foods not usually included in the commissary department. Quote, I learn our men are making great preparations for Christmas and otherwise attempting to make themselves happy and contented and accept their trials and tribulations, Mullen wrote. On Christmas Day, a huge feast was prepared, such a feast as had never been seen in the Rocky Mountains, according to Mullen. The office was decorated with flags, deer horns, and evergreen boughs. The festivities continued far into the night. He said because the men were feeling the effects of their dissipation the next day, they were excused from work for the day. Two days later, Indians from the camp at the crossing, St. Regis, came with venison and moccasins to sell, but the prices they asked were so exorbitant that the men refused to buy. Mullen reported warm weather with the temperature about 31 degrees above all, above all during the Christmas season. The snow was about 22 inches deep. Five men were sent to explore the practicality of the road chosen to the river crossing. All buildings at Cantonment Jordan were completed by the first of the year. Mullen continued to worry about finances, writing that they were under heavy expenses. He assumed that some of the men would be dropped from the payroll until road, road building could begin. For about a six-week period, most of the civilians were without pay. A group of the dissatisfied men attempted to return to Walla Walla, but the deep snow and cold weather forced them to return to camp. One of the men suffered such severe frostbite that the amputation of one leg was necessary. James Mullen, a brother to John Mullen, was physician for the camp. Another civilian reportedly left camp in search of whiskey and was so badly frostbitten by the time he was found that it was necessary to amputate both feet. Apparently, false stories had leaked out of the camp concerning conditions at Cantonment Jordan. In the March 9, 1860 issue of the newspaper Pioneer and Democrat of Olympia, Washington, there was printed an excerpt from the San Francisco Herald published on February 18, 1860. This was a letter written to the Herald by W.W. W. Johnson, a civil engineer with the Mullen Group. Johnson stated he was writing the letter in hopes it would be published and relieve the anxiety of many of those who had either friends or relatives in the Mullen camp. 
Johnson wrote that a large depot warehouse was filled to its ridgepole with flour, pork, coffee, sugar, and all other commodities compromising commissary stores. Quote, we have an abundance of supplies to last until spring with a large amount of fresh beef, Johnson wrote. Lieutenant Mullen will send his backstring to Fort Benton in early March for supplies left there by the steamboat last summer, comprising about 60 tons. The only case which is in any way serious is that of a soldier named Mahone, who started out in search for whiskey, was gone three days, and when found was so badly frozen that his life was despaired of. Both his feet were amputated, and when I left the company January 9th, his recovery was doubtful. After Mullen completed all plans for resumption of work in the spring, he detailed duties to the various groups of men to keep them occupied during the winter months. He then went to Fort Owen in the Bitterroot to make arrangements for obtaining stock to replenish those lost during the winter. He met with a group of Flathead Indians. Gustavus Sohan, trusted guide and interpreter, was there with Mullen. Sohan was also a talented artist. Quote, I need 117 horses with pack saddles and about 20 men to go to Fort Benton with Mr. Sohan to bring back needed supplies, Mullen told the Indians. The next morning, Chief Ambrose appeared with a bundle of 137 sticks to indicate the number of horses and men he would furnish. Quote, such nobleness of character as is found among the flatheads is seldom seen among Indians, and I have records to their credit that I never had a want but which, when made known to them, they supplied, and that they always treated myself and my parties with a frank generosity and a continued friendship, Mullen wrote. Sohon and the Indians made the trip to Fort Benton and back during the month of March. The Indians were paid for the use of the horses and men, while in the Bitterroot, Mullen also ordered 50 mules to be sent from Salt Lake City, Utah. When he returned to Cantonment, Jordan, in February, Mullen found about 25 men suffering from symptoms of scurvy caused not from the lack of food, but lack of fresh vegetables. In company with Lieutenant Lyon, Mullen journeyed to Penn Oriole Mission, which had been moved from the lake of that name to St. Ignatius. The name of the mission was later changed to St. Ignatius. The fathers at the mission were generous, and Mullen and Lyon returned laden with fresh vegetables. Under the care of Dr. James Mullen and the use of the fresh vegetables and vinegar, the men soon recovered. Mullen had noted on his trip to the mission that as they approached the river, the snow was not nearly so deep and the temperature was much milder. Conditions were such that road work could be started at once from the ferry site up to the Clark Fork River. To avoid confusion, the reader must understand that when Mullen and his men wrote of the Bitterroot River, they were referring to the present Bitterroot River and the Clark Fork River from Missoula to its confluence near Paradise with the Flathead River. Then the two rivers became the, Clark, the Clark's Fork. They referred to the upper Clark Fork east of Missoula as Hellgate River. On February 20th, 1860, Mullen wrote orders and detailed duties to the entire group of men. These orders were to be carried out while he was on another trip to the Bitterroot. Work was to begin from the crossing of the Clark Fork at the mouth of the St. Regis River and continue up the river since there were many small prairies barred of snow and would provide forage for the stock. Plans to build a road from Cantonment Jordan to the river were abandoned until such time as the snow melted. The entire camp was moved over the mountains to the ferry site. Work began immediately to construct a flat boat 42 feet long and 12 feet wide to be used as a ferry. Five flat boats 15 feet long and two and a half feet wide at the bottom were also built from the lumber Strachan and his comp companions had whipsawed during the winter. In a letter to a Mr. Hildreth, Mullen wrote, Dear Sir, you are hereby placed in charge of the stores, storehouse and ferry at the crossing of the Bitterroot, Clark Fork River. You will issue provisions to the working men as chiefs of parties shall call for them. 
You will see that the boats are properly cared for, and white persons and Indians will have the free and willing use of the boats at all hours. You will lend every cooperation and aid to such persons, citizens, and others, as many desire to cross the ferry, and, by a good understanding with the Indians, promote the best results for the expedition. During the fall of 1859 and the early winter, Mullen had had sur survey parties scouring the entire area from Coeur d'Alene north to Colville and eastward to Penorial Lake and up to the Flathead River. The men involved in these explorations gathered either at Fort Owen or Cantonment Jordan and spent much time compiling survey notes and writing detailed reports of their work. Many of these reports are included in the book Report of John Mullen to the Army. W.W. DeLacy, a civil engineer, and two other men were sent to explore the river from St. Regis to its confluence with the Flathead River near Paradise. This is known locally as the Cutoff. In his report to Mullen, he wrote, Sir, in obedience to your orders of March 27, 1860, I started on April 4th from the wagon road crossing on the Bitterroot River to make a survey of part of the Bitterroot River, Clark's Fork, and Flathead Rivers. I took with me one of the flat-bottom boats built at the ferry, about 12 feet long, two men, and rations for 30 days. The weather at first was unfavorable and delayed us several days. I was successful in getting the boat over all the rapids in the Bitterroot River and down Clark's Fork, about 10 miles and thus ascend the flathead to the mouth of Plum Creek, on which the Penorial Mission is situated. I visited the mission where I was hospitably received by the Reverend Fathers, Lewis and Minitre, and connected it with my survey, and finally returned to the wagon road crossing on the 21st of April, having to cordel my boat all the way up the Bitterroot River and haul it unloaded over the two worst rapids. DeLacy wrote a very graphic description of the geographical features of the entire area surveyed, including the area around plains. This is an extensive flat on a high plateau more than a mile wide and very long, he wrote of plains, which was called Horse Plains. It is interesting to note that the Burlington Northern Freight Line from St. Regis to Plains was built nearly where DeLacy recommended, should a railroad ever be built. DeLacy closes his report to Mullen with these words, The rock formation seems to be trap a dark-colored igneous rock, a form of basalt, thus has been an upheaval and disturbance of the whole of this region. Neither fossils nor evidence of metallic minerals were found, though both were looked for when opportunities presented. In conclusion, I would beg leave to mention in terms of praise the two men who accompanied me, Isaac Greer and Dan Smith, Privates, 3rd Artillery, for their good conduct throughout the trip, but particularly when dragging a boat up the Bitterroot River, where they were in the water nearly from morning till night. According to Mullen, evidences of gold, silver, and copper were observed in most areas from Walla Walla to the present Helena, but the men were discouraged from seeking it or taking of it. It was feared if gold was discovered, it would be difficult to keep men on the surveying and road-building project. Road-building from the ferry crossing at St. Regis eastward for 30 miles was completed without difficulty. The topographical character of the river required that the north bank be followed that far. By the 10th of May, the road had been completed for the, from the winter camp, Cantonment Jordan, to the big mountain north of the present scenic bridge, with only three miles of excavation necessary. Big Mountain juts upon the riverbank for about six miles. Mullen was faced with three alternatives. Cross the river by ferry, make a side hill cut through the rock, or pass to the north of the mountain. The latter was decided upon. Mullen writes of this work, On the first day of May, I commenced upon the cut around the big mountain, and by the 10th had my entire force of citizens and soldiers employed. My camps were formed 
at its west base were a small creek and an abundance of timber afforded all the convenience required. The camps were at Crystal Springs. In order to obtain the practicable, the practicable elevation, on account of the abrupt rocky faces of the spurs, I carried the line up a ravine until, gaining 1,000 feet, I wound around the mountainside, making the re-entering angles by gentle curves until the entire six miles was completed. It was a severe piece of work and cost us the labor of 150 men for six weeks. Being rocky in most places, we were compelled to blast when, by a premature explosion, one of our men, Sheridan, lost one of his eyes and another, Robert P. Booth, was severely stunned. This finished all further difficulties as location ceased. The construction of the six miles of road was undoubtedly the most time-consuming of any portion of the entire road. In another six weeks, the road had been completed to Fort Benton. At Fort Benton, Major Blake and 300 recruits, with orders to advance over the newly constructed road to Walla Walla, were awaiting the arrival of the Mullen Party. On August 5, 1860, Mullen's party began to return to Walla Walla in advance of Major Blake and his men. Mullen's plan to return to Walla Walla was to pass rapidly over the road, keeping always in advance of Blake's command. Repairs were made where necessary. From Fort Benton to the Bitterroot Ferry, their movements were rapid and the work light. Quote, entering the timbered region of the Bitterroot Mountains, where the more difficult section of the road lies, repairs became more frequently necessary. We had originally cut the stumps as close to the ground as possible, but the road having been traveled, the melting snows of the past winter had washed away the soils from the roots, causing them from their height to constitute material obstacles. It was, of course, impossible to cut them down again this season, and hence, determining to make this a special work for the next summer, I limited myself to making such repairs as immediate necessary called as immediate necessity <laughs> as immediate necessity called for mullen wrote after reaching walla walla with his party mullen departed for washington dc where he spent the winter making reports on completed work and drawing up plans for future work on the road the following may a work party under the supervision of mullen left walla walla to retrace the road and change it where necessary there had been a heavy settlement of immigrants along the portion of the road since its completion Bridges were built where cuts could not be made in the mountainside. The entire force was divided into groups of from 4 to 20 men. Each group was assigned a bridge to build and the road to repair between the two crossings. Each group was supplied with wagons drawn by oxen for hauling blocks and tackle and the heavy timbers. On September 15, 1861, the summit of the Bitterroot Mountains had been reached. The next 30 miles would require numberless bridges. Mullen, afraid that they might again be caught in deep snows, decided to build only the framework of the bridges and leave the covering for another season. A supply depot had been set up at the Bitterroot Ferry Crossing. The planned project was completed to the ferry site by the 1st of, no of November. The entire contingent was moved into winter quarters at the, month of the, at the mouth of the Blackfoot River. An extremely cold winter followed in which Indian and white men endured untold suffering. Due to the deep snow and extreme cold, the group of men were unable to complete as much work along the Hellsgate River as had been planned. When spring came, the work was delayed still more because of extremely high water. About the 1st of May, 1862, a work party was sent to the St. Regis Valley to complete the work which had been abandoned the previous fall. Mullen made a hurried trip to Fort Benton with an escort of 16 soldiers, 6 civilians, and any employees who wished to return to the States. He expressed great pity for the Indians who were on the prowl, hungry and short of stock after the hard winter. The fourth time over the road, Mullen noted some minor changes of route that should be made. From the Bitterroot Ferry to the Spokane Plain, a distance of 120 miles, Mullen recommended that the timbered section should be cut 60 feet wide. 
The admission of additional sunlight and heat and the less danger of obstruction from fallen timber as well as the greater rapidity with which the snow would melt in autumn and early spring are the advantages in its favor, so strong that if done, at least two months of travel will be added yearly and the road made subservient to many more objects than I can now claim for it, Mullen wrote. He recommended that 70000 more be appropriated for this work. Mullen disbanded his exp expedition in September and returned to Washington, D.C. to make his report to the War Department. Mullen summarized the work of building the Mullen Road when he wrote, Thus ended my work in the field, costing seven years of close and arduous attention, exploring and opening up a road of 624 miles from the Columbia to the Missouri River at a cost of 230000 That it will subserve the many purposes claimed for it, be its friends, I can only sincerely hope that time may eventually prove. With every disposition on my part, it is possible here to give those details of construction where special difficulties arose day by day for solution. The many trying positions in which I found myself placed during so long a period, the many discomforts put up with by my men who yet retain all their cheerfulness. Suffice it to say, we succeeded in our own satisfaction in accomplishing the full object of our mission, and those who by their cheerful aid lent me their cooperation have here my most heartfelt thanks. During the month of June 1862, four steamers carrying 364 immigrants from St. Louis had arrived at Fort Benton. According to Mullen, they were bound for Walla Walla and points en route. There were many miners among them who intended prospecting en route to the Pacific coast. Most of these people would travel over the Mullen Road. How many more followed these that season and in the succeeding years, there is, of course, no way of knowing. However, it is a known fact that until the railroads were built into the northwest, the route up the Missouri River by steamboat and across the mountains on the Mullen Road was the quickest and easiest route to the Pacific Northwest. In Miners and Travelers Guide, Mullen writes advice to the traveler and lists a 47-day itinerary from Walla Walla to Fort Benton. Nine days of that time were required to, to, to traverse the approximately 80 miles through what is now Mineral County. The following is his description of that portion of the journey. Nineteenth day, make an early start and cross the summit of Bitterroot Mountains. May have to double teams at second curve. Move to the five-mile prairie on St. Regis de Borgia River. Distance, eleven and a half miles. Grass sparse, wood and water abundant. Twentieth day, move eleven and a half miles to Sawyer's Prairie. Wood, water, and grass abundant. Road good. Twenty-first day, move to Cantamit Jordan, five and a half miles distant. Grass a half mile above camp, wood and water everywhere. 22nd day, move to Bitterroot Ferry, distance 14 and a quarter miles, wood, water, and grass abundant. 23rd day, cross ferry at St. Regis and go to Seven Mile Prairie. Charges $4 per wagon and 50 cents for each man. The stream is fordable and very low water, but I would advise all strangers to cross in the ferry boat as the ford is a dangerous one, except to those who know it well. Rest your animals at this point. Good camp with wood, water, and grass. 24th day, move nine and one-half miles to Browns Prairie. Good road, wood, water, and grass at camp. 25th day, move 15 and one-half miles to west end of Big Side Cuts and camp at foot of mountain on Small Creek, Crystal Springs. Wood, water, and grass abundance. May have to double teams over Browns Cutoff Divide. Going either way, road good with this exception. 26th day, move over the big side cut to a camp on the main river, one mile above the rocky points, where the road passes through a rocky defile. Distance 17 miles, road fair, wood, water, and grass at camp. 
27th day, moved to Brown's house, 12 miles distant. Road good, wood, water, and grass at camp. Mullen wrote that from about 10 miles east of the Coeur d'Alene mission to the St. Regis Ferry, frost and other mountain characteristics would preclude any farms being opened. Quote, at the mouth of the St. Regis de Borgia River, however, several tracts of land are found, which, if cultivated, will come into requisition for mail stations and supplying travelers and immigrants. Seven Mile Prairie along the Bitterroot offers a good site for small farms. Also, Brown's Prairie, Namote Prairie, Skiotoy Creek, where the wild Timothy hay abundantly grows, and many large and beautiful tracts along the north bank of the main Bitterroot River, Mullen wrote. He stated that deer and sheep were found in abundance, and all the streams were filled with trout. Mike Madovich, a surveyor and former resident of Superior, now retired and living in Polson, said the accuracy of the surveying done by the Mullen Group has been a marvel to surveyors of this area for the past 100 years. When the county was open to homesteading, Mullen's figures were used. Later, when U.S. geological surveys were made, Mullen's figures were proven to be essentially correct. off but I just paid like $1,800 <laughs> yeah so I'm gonna get a tow truck and I'm gonna say to the dealership what the fuck because I'm glad I didn't take a shitty van on the interstate cause then the tire would falling off when I was going fast and I probably would be dead right now so I'm really happy that didn't happen, but instead I tried to go and get a shop back from Mullen Road, and well, you saw what happened. That's right, the tire fell off. I managed to get off the main road with other cars going real fast, but I wanted to let a business know my car might be there for a day or two, so went up to the spa place, knocked on the door. What did I see? Well, I didn't see anything legal, I swear. I would have reported that to the law enforcement agencies, the proper ones. But the woman who came out to talk, she talked in a language that wasn't English. And then she gave me a phone number of the manager. We, we figured out that's what she was trying to give me. Because she just kept on showing me her phone. And all I saw was a language that wasn't English. No. She actually did confirm it was Mandarin. I told her that I don't speak Mandarin. I don't need a massage. And this was not the same massage place that just got busted for human trafficking. No. That, that's soul massage this one oh, I'm not gonna say the name quite yet I'm gonna do some journalist stuff <laughs> oh but that will be a post for the next week unless I get turned into a ghost because my car killed me well I can't drive it anymore the wheel came off so I pulled over 
I got off the Reserve Street Bridge because that's not a place you want to have car troubles. It's not. Second car that got fucked up. Is there a conspiracy to make sure I can't go farther than two wheels will take me and my two strong legs? Thank you, God, for giving me two strong legs. I'm glad I still have the use of those legs. But if I say that out loud, I'm afraid the storm that's blown in might have some lightning in it. And well, I could see myself getting hit by a bolt of lightning. <laughs> that would be the shit. Oh, another week has come and gone here in Zoom Town. Oh my goodness, I think I'll just end the song now. You've heard quite enough. I'll be back next week, bringing you a lot of posts at 7 a.m. Because that's when I schedule them. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And stay tuned, there's more to come.